This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotny. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This week is episode number 515, and we visit with an old friend of the show, and one of our most active guests over the years, Mr. Don Weeks. Looking forward to a great show with Don. Before we get started, I want to thank our platinum sponsor. IAQ Radio Platinum Sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. I also want to thank our gold sponsors, Particles Plus, Healthy Indoors Magazine, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, and AEML Inc. Laboratory. And of course, our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association and the Restoration Industry Association. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio trivia question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnik at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio trivia question. Hello, everyone. The IQ Radio trivia question for today, Friday, September 7, 2018, has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company, creating unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Here is today's trivia question. What is the formal name of the book edited by Bradley Prezant, Donald Weeks, and J. David Miller, nicknamed The Green Book? Back to you, Joe. Thank you, Cliff. Okay, today's guest is Don Weeks. He's a certified industrial hygienist and a certified safety professional who recently retired from In-Air Environmental, which is based in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. He's a past president of the Indoor Air Quality Association, as well as a past president of the Ottawa Valley Chapter of ASHRAE. He is currently the president of the Indoor Environmental Quality Global Alliance, and also serves as a member on the board of directors of the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists. I want to do this without giving away the answer to the, the trivia question. Somebody Don, got it already, no more. <laughs> oh, somebody got it? Okay, better yet. Uh, Don's a four-time recipient of AIHA's Best Seller Award for the report of the Microbial Task Force in 2001 and 2002, and Assessment Remediation and Post-Verification post-remediation verification of mold in buildings in 2004, and also the Green Book, uh, Recognition, Evaluation, and Control of Indoor Mold, which was the trivia question for today. Don, welcome to IAQ. Welcome back to IAQ Radio. Great to have you. Yeah, it's great to be here. Good to uh, see Dawn, you guys. I, I get, let's get to the big, the big change for you, at least, first. Um, in the intro, we said you were the uh, past... Uh, Let's see, past, recently retired from in-air environmental. Uh, maybe tell listeners a little bit about what happened there. Well, what happened was that uh, basically uh, I decided to, uh, it was time for me to move on. Uh, so I, 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 uh, we, we've been working on uh, the idea of selling the company for about a year, a year and a half. And um, we had uh, we had a very fortunate situation with uh, 
with another company, uh, an engineering company called Miraton, uh, owned by two brothers, uh, Jimmy and Johnny Chowan. And uh, we had worked with them on a number of projects, and uh, I approached them about the idea of potentially working with us uh, or basically buying us. And uh, we, it was like it always is when you have a, a, a legal situation. It is the lawyers that dictate how long it takes to actually happen. And it, it took some time to get it all together. But as of August 1st, uh, In-Air Environmental is now a sister company of Miraton, and I am retired. Uh, I help out on occasion, but uh, my job is basically to to make sure that uh, that uh, things are on this go in the right direction. But for the most part, I am now on my own. Don't earn any money by find anybody, so I can now say whatever I want to say, and nobody has to get upset about it. <laughs> well, having gone through that, you know, sell of sale of a business, Don. Are there any tips you could give listeners who are business owners out there to help better prepare them for if and when that day finally comes? Yes, I, I think one of the key things that we, we, we learned was that it's probably not a good idea to approach your competitors. Uh, one of the things that you, you think you want to do is you want to basically try to work with somebody or, or sell to somebody who's already in your business. In actual fact, what we found out is that that's very difficult because they have their own way of doing things and they have their own techniques. They have, you know, and they figure, well, if you go away, I can get your clients anyway, so why should I pay for them? It's much better to go with somebody who is looking to expand their business, but has a, a kind of a, a different perspective. In this case, it was mechanical engineering uh, than what we did. And their idea is to build environmental into the mechanical engineering and vice versa. And that really is going to be a, 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 good, um, a good challenge for them. I think it, it's, a, it's a good idea to approach people who are doing things other than what you do to kind of see what they might be interested in, in buying your company. So, for me, it was, and for Lanchi, it was a, it was a really good experience, and, and look, you know, I think they're going to do very well with the two combined companies. Don, did you have an intermediary represent you, or did you do it yourself? Well, we did it ourselves in this particular case because we knew the the potential client uh, or the people that we wanted to sell to. But I did think about going to somebody other than uh, you know directly to the to the. Uh, uh, companies, but uh, it was better in this case because we, we we were able to work out most of the details in advance before we got the lawyers involved. Uh, and then once we had the lawyers involved, as I said, it took a little longer than we would like it to taken. But uh, we had most of the major issues, the sale price, uh, you know, things of that nature, which were we we settled among ourselves. And then basically we we had the legal eagles um, make sure that all the you know the I's are dotted and the T's crossed to make when we actually did the uh, sale transaction on August 1st. Okay, thanks. Well, do you have any feel for how soft or how strong the market is for indoor environmental or I get you, you're kind of a, a mix of industrial hygiene and in the indoor environmental quality. Any feel for how strong the market is for people to purchase companies like that? I think the market is strong uh, in certain locations. I think that, the, for example, I know right now that there's a great uh, ind individual groups that are working to do this type of work, uh, not only in, in North America, but overseas and particularly in, in, uh, in Asia. And if you have that combination of being able to provide that services over there, plus do it here in North America, you're in a very good shape to sell. If, on the other hand, you're a very local-based company, I think it's much more difficult because, as I said, your competitor is going to look at it and say, 
well, I'm not going to buy them because basically once they're out of business, I can basically pick up their clients without having to pay a cent. And so it's difficult when you're a relatively small company and you have a very regional type basis. I think you have to look, as I said, for other type of companies that are in the, the business, but not necessarily yours directly, to, if you want to sell that, that business. So I don't think the market is, is, is soft or hard. I think it just depends on the circumstances under which you find yourself and where you are geographically. All right, let's, let's move on to Indoor Air 2018, Don. That's a, a conference that I, I really wish I could have attended. Unfortunately, I, I didn't make it. I'm having some back issues, and a, sometimes a long drive like that just isn't in the plans. But um, you did get to attend at least part of it, and I was wondering if you could tell listeners a little bit about, you know, uh, what the hot research topics were this year and then any, any presentations that kind of caught your eye and, and uh, maybe something that listeners could learn that weren't able to attend. Yeah, I mean, it was in Philadelphia. Um, I came down for the day because uh, I was on vacation. I uh, took the, um, the, the Excella down, which was quite, quite comfortable and quite interesting to, to ride on, and uh, spent the day in, in uh, Philadelphia at the conference. There were 881 different presentations and posters. And what I was immediately impressed by was the biodiversity of the, or the diversity of the attendees. I mean, there were at least 45 to 50 countries represented there. Um, and the type of presentations, you know, I'll give you some of the ones that I was able to sit in a little bit on. There was one that was on culturally appropriate household heating transition for the Navajo, Navajo uh, Nation. And it was presented by people who were actually part of the, uh, the, uh, the Navajo Nation and what they were doing in terms of, of, uh, of working with the, the, uh, the nation itself as to what is culturally appropriate and what can be used in their, in their, in their uh, uh, different dwellings. And also how about impact of, of water? Uh, well, it was, it was basically smoking, basically water pipes smoking on indoor air quality. Uh, I had not really thought about that as being a, a real big issue, but apparently it can be if, you, if it's not uh, adequately um, uh, exhausted. And then the other one that caught my eye was one that, that we've talked bef uh, before about Rich Corsi uh, in uh, indoor air, uh, reduction of exposures to airborne particles while sleeping. Uh, Rich is very famous for having pointed out how many hours, how much percentage of our lives we spend in bed. And uh, 26 uh, years of our life apparently is spent in bed if we live to an average age of 79. Uh, so basically, you have to figure out what kind of problems might you have while you're sleeping and what, what causes the, you know, the, we've all probably experienced this where we've woken up with, uh, with coughing or, 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 or sneezing or something of that nature. What, is the particles, what are the particles effects that you have while you're sleeping uh, that may be uh, a problem that you may have with regards to your ventilation system, uh, you know, covers that you may be using, things of that nature. What, what direction, uh, you know, do you sleep on your side? Do you, do you sleep on your back? Things of that nature, which really are important because, as I said, 26 years of our lives were spent on you in, the, in sleeping. It makes sense that we look at the indoor air quality for that. Hmm. And what, uh, you, you mentioned sleeping on your side, sleeping on your back. I would imagine sleeping on your back is better, but did he, did he indicate one way or the other? Uh, he's basically the presentation talked about different positions and the percentage of those individuals that ended up coughing. A lot, it seems that more of it is actually as, as you would expect, it's, it's more of an age, uh, type of situation. The older you get, the more likely you're going to have problems. Um, 
yes, back is the best position, but if you sleep on your side and when you're younger, it, it's not going to be as big a problem. And the other thing is you have to have sources. Some people sleep with, with uh, ventilation, uh, air conditioning going. That may or may not uh, necessarily uh, prevent um, exposure to particles because you may not have an adequate filter. Uh, and the other problem is what time of year are we talking about? This time of year, uh, as some of us know, it's a, an era, a time when we have a lot more particles in the air from, from pollen and things of that nature. How do you filter that out so it doesn't interrupt your sleep? So it's an interesting presentation in that regard. You know, it, it brings up a couple thoughts. One is, um, I don't know if listeners are all aware or not, we're going to do a show on this if we can squeeze it in somewhere, but EPA recently updated their filtration guide in the, on their website, and they, they put a lot of new information in there, a lot of it based on research that people have done, and, and some on, on um, air filtration during sleep, you know, using portable air cleaners, etc. cetera. Uh, very nice document. I'll, I'll put a link to that in the blog. Cliff, maybe we can get a link to that in the blog. Um, the other thing I, I, I was wondering about with respect to sleep is, is Don, and I don't know if it's, well, yeah, it has to do with sleep. What do you recommend for your clients? This is something I've really been focused on lately, and I've been pushing it in my, not only in my own life, but in, in talking to any clients. What do you recommend for clients with respect to better ways of controlling their, uh, their, their exposure during sleep? Well, one of the things you have to look at more than anything else is how often should you be cleaning your bedding? Because a lot of people aren't aware of or not thinking about, for example, various problems with, um, uh, with uh, dust mites and, 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 and all sorts of bugs that might be in, in the micro, um, you know, microorganisms of various sorts. So you do have to have that kind of you know, discussion with your client if they're saying that their biggest problem is in the bedroom. Um, you, you want to have them make sure that they're doing adequate cleaning and the cleaning is effective. It's not necessarily just throw it into the, into the wash. You have to have some kind of antimicrobial um, cleanser that you're using in that regard. And then the other thing people don't think about is it, what, about the, what about the mattress themselves? How often do you clean that? How often do you turn it over? Uh, sometimes that's really, sometimes that's all you really need, but it has to be done because all of us, uh, don't necessarily take that into account when we when we think about what we're doing in our in our bedrooms. And then, of course, there is always potential other sources. You mentioned uh, people have these various filters. You've, you've seen probably on the on the television, people are doing different uh, uh, prob different types of uh, devices for their noses and for their for their mouths. How how effective are these? You know, are these evaluated by any agency of of, uh, of any government and whether or not they're effective or not? So you have to be careful with what you put on your face. Sometimes it isn't necessarily going to help you. It might actually hinder you in some ways. So you have to be, you know, have to think of all the different things, just like we do in any other indoor air quality survey. You have to think of all the different things that may potentially be a source. How does that source get to be an exposure? And what do you do to mitigate and reduce the exposure to, to so, so that you can sleep soundly? How often do you recommend people change their sheets? Well, I, I'm married to a very uh, uh, efficient and very uh, particular uh, woman uh, who you know very well, and she. Yes. Uh, and she, she does, she makes sure we clean them at least once a week. Um, and I, I think that's probably a very good thing to do. Um, I'm, I'm very much uh, happy that we do that because it, it certainly makes it much more comfortable for me. But I think it's important that people realize that, you know, 
it, it depends on your circumstances. Uh, a lot of people are looking at um, more exposure due to outdoor uh, air pollution coming into their bedrooms because people like to leave their windows open in their bedrooms at night. That's great, but it isn't necessarily going to prevent any type of exposure to the dust mites or anything of that nature. So you have to you have to judge it for yourself as to how often it should be clean. But it, it is important to make sure that you have a regular schedule for doing that. You know, it's I'm glad you mentioned that because I I do have dust mite allergies. Um, I live in the in the country. Unfortunately, there's a farm behind me that grows Timothy, which I'm terribly allergic to. Um, what I've I've started to do, and it's, I, it's helped me personally, is I, I shower in the evening so that I take, you know, all that pollen, et cetera, that's gotten on me during the day off before I go to bed. And then I, uh, we've been changing the sheets twice a week, and when I do, I have to vacuum my bed off. And, it, you know, anecdotally, it's helped me quite a bit. So, um, you know, for listeners out there that might be interested in that, uh, you know, that's kind of the tips I give other people now. Let's, let's move over to um, – I want to talk a little bit about the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists, ACGIH. I know that um, you're now on their board of directors. I don't know how long you have been on their board of directors, but, you know, maybe you just update listeners a little on. We don't hear much from ACGIH, at least I haven't in the last, you know, five or ten years here. Uh, Every once in a while you'll get something, but uh, update listeners on what the purpose of the organization is and then uh, what your position is and, and maybe like how the group is funded. Yeah, I mean, basically the ACGIH uh, is the people that, well, the organization that comes out with the threshold limit values, the TLDs. Uh, these were the basis of the permissible exposure limits that OSHA now uh, promulgates. Uh, prior to OSHA coming into existence in 1972, uh, the uh, ACGIH have been putting out uh, these TLDs, threshold limit values, eight-hour values, since the late 30s, early 40s. And when OSHA came into existence, one of the first things they did was adopt the most current list of TLDs. Uh, unfortunately, in, over the next 45 years or so, since 1972, 46 years, uh, that hasn't always kept up with what is happening with regards to the ACGIH TLDs. Those are updated on a yearly basis, and there's a, a TLD book that comes out, a booklet that comes out once a year with the, with the date on it, saying what, what, you know, what is the most current uh, TLDs for of over 400 different types of, of uh, contaminants. And it also has a list of things that they're, they're reviewing, uh, well, chemicals that they're reviewing, so that they can, they can tell uh, anybody who's interested in what they're going to be doing with those, you can look at the intended changes and notice some intended changes and, and be prepared for things that may be going coming out in a year or two. Uh, they also do things with regards to uh, physical and biological uh, to, uh, threshold limit values as well. And so it's a comprehensive committee uh, organization. Uh, I'm, I serve on the uh, board of directors since January of this year. So I'm relatively new to the, to the process. But one of the most interesting things I've done over the last year is sit in on the industrial ventilation uh, book, um, the, the uh, committee that works on that and, and has a new book coming out every, every three years, thereabouts. Uh, <clears throat> they're coming out with a new one in um, 2000, early 2019. Uh, so listening to what they have to talk about in terms of ventilation, particularly ventilation for industrial facilities, but also ventilation for other types of facilities as well, 
it was quite fascinating to see their process and to listen to what they actually do. Their, uh, their courses, the industrial ventilation courses, have been, uh, are sold out every time they run them. They run them about every two or three months. Uh, they get 40, 50 people coming to them, and they also are available online as well. So it's quite a, quite a, a good way for raising money. They're one of our bigger money makers other than the TLB books. Uh, and the, the justification for the TLB books is also a big seller as well. You know, I couldn't reach my TLV books, but uh, I could reach this one here. I don't know if you could put this up for me, John, if you can zero in on it. Um, the Bioaerosols book. That looks like it's well used there, Joe. <laughs> it has been, Don. If you can you can see it's all marked up and very well used. I, I consider this kind of like the, the foundation for a lot um, with, with respect to bioaerosols. I'm wondering, has there been any uh, talk about updating the bioaerosols book or any, any, uh, any other comments you have on that book? Yes. Uh, one of the first things I asked when I became a member of the board of directors is, uh, so what's happening with the bioaerosols book? And because it hasn't been updated since 1999. And uh, I'm not going to go into a long, long history about why it's, that has occurred, but I do want to say that, um, that there has been discussion at the board of uh, directors level about uh, you know, getting a, a committee together, a bioaerosols committee, to work on uh, a new edition of that book. Um, that's going to take some time. Uh, you know, just getting the committee together, start working on it, updating it. Uh, we're not looking about, you know, anything in, in, in 2019. It's more like in 2020 or, or 2021. But with the we are looking at progress to at least get the committee together and start looking at the book and, 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 and certainly do an update, hopefully, in, in Three, you know, two to three years. Good, good. And what, let's let's move over to um, the AIHA Green Book, uh, Don, which is recognition, evaluation, and control of indoor mold. I could that one's even more beat up than uh, the ACGIH book here. It, that one's right behind me as well. Um, what's going on with the Green Book? Any revisions there? Any anything new coming up? Yeah, actually, this is the tenth anniversary of it. And uh, one of the editors, uh, who, who uh, Cliff mentioned, uh, David Miller, has been diligently working on getting an update done. He hopes to get it done by the end of this year so he can mark the 10th anniversary of it. Um, I'm, I'm very hopeful he will be able to do that as well. But, yes, he's been working very hard over the last year or so to, uh, to update it. So I expect that that will come out some hopefully in 2020 as well. You know, looking back over 10 years now, Don, it, it was a, a great document. We, you know, use it quite a bit. Um, looking back now, what types of things would you think Don, um, J. David Miller is working on and what types of recommendations have you given for updates on that book? Well, I think more than anything else, what we have seen over the last 10 years has been an increased emphasis, not just on microbial contamination, but on dampness itself, looking at what it is that a damp building is and, and what, what constitutes dampness in a building. What, what, how do we define it? So I think there's, there's going to be a need to update to include a lot more information about that because it, it does the, the health effects that we, we see from folks that are living in a, in a, a damp building are um, very much documented and, and, and in many ways are more of a problem than when you have a microbial contamination. So dampness, I think, will be a, a greater emphasis. We're not going to steer away from a mold or from microbial contamination, but we, I think there's going to be an added emphasis on, on things that are 
just damp and not necessarily exhibiting um, mold at that point. And I think that's gonna be a big uh, improvement in perhaps in the book and certainly a, a great addition to support people who are doing these investigations. Dawn, over the years, you've done, I'm sure, I mean, we all get sucked into the mold world, unfortunately. It's, you know, what, what people, it's what they can see, you know, and I agree that dampness is the, is the issue. Mold is just the symptom that you have an issue. Um, and, and oftentimes we are kind of uh, pushed into developing some kind of post-remediation verification to ensure that the mold problem has been fixed. And I'm wondering if you could comment on what you, in your practice, what you re- recommended or, re, you know, or uh, re- wrote up with respect to PRV after mold projects. Well, a discussion at the next IHUA conference on this, uh, Ian Cole has put this together and he's asked okay. me to sit in on it as well. Uh, and my position is that you do need to do two things as post-remediation verification. Number one is a visual inspection a very thorough visual inspection. There's been so many different ways of, uh, of looking at a, a facility that, that really requires a, you know, that you have experienced individual going in, making sure that everything that was going to cause a problem has been addressed in some way, either dried out you know, or removed or in some way basically remediated. Now, in addition, I recommend uh, air sampling at the, at the end um, for, with using uh, uh, aerosol type of filters and pumps, and, and we do the sampling and we compare it to the outdoors. Um, do I know whether or not that is uh, going to make a difference? It's hard to say, because basically, like we were talking earlier, this time of year, we have a high lot, a lot of, uh, of uh, pollen and other types of materials in the air. It's hard to make that comparison with the indoors. I also live in a very harsh winter environment here. So if you try to do a comparison in January in Ottawa to outside the in, to inside, it's, it's virtually meaningless. You don't really get you know, anything outside and whatever you get inside may be very minimal, but you know, it's certainly gonna be greater than outside. Uh, so you have to take that into account and kind of look at it and say, well, the visual inspection is not finding anything. The air sampling is not giving us any warnings, not anything that's a real problem. But, you know, we, we know that the visual inspection is going to have the top priority in terms of determining whether the job is completed or not. There's been some uh, trend toward just doing particle counts as opposed to spore trap with an aerosol or whatever type of uh, spore trap uh, sampler you're going to use or impactor, I guess. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Do you do, you do at least maybe like a – a pre-screen with a particle counter, or do you feel that's been uh, oversold? Uh, I'm not sure it's been oversold. I, I do think it's more effective when you're doing it at the perimeter of the containment during the abatement. Um, I think that works reasonably well because you can determine what, if there's any type of breach of any sort. Uh, at the end, I'm not sure if that necessarily tells you anything about, you know, whether or not you have a, a continuing problem or not because the dust or the particles could be coming from almost anywhere. And particularly if you have the containment under negative pressure, you could be having, you know, you could be having dragging stuff in from outside. Uh, so I'm not sure how effective it is there, but I, I do see where there may be some usefulness for particle counters, uh, particularly during the abatement to, uh, to measure if there's any breaches in the containment. Okay. Uh, Cliff, before we go to halftime, any, any follow-up questions? 
Nope, I'm good. Okay, uh, Dawn, I'm going to break just a minute early here to, uh, because when we get back, I want to go into some, uh, some topics that I think are going to take us a little while. So we'll be right back with the second half of our interview. We've got Dawn Weeks today. Good to have Dawn back on the show. IAQ Radio Platinum Sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Gold sponsors are Particles Plus Engineers and Manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters and air quality monitoring instrumentation. Learn more at ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at HealthyIndoors.com. And AEML Laboratories, free FedEx shipping, great pricing, same-day results, and never a rush fee. Learn more at AEMLinc.com. Association sponsors are the Indoor Air Quality Association, a multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Learn more at iaqa.org and ria the restoration industry association the granddaddy of the restoration industry network with leaders learn more at restorationindustry.org okay we're back for the second half of our interview we've got don weeks here and don i i I kind of I want to go back to that uh, discussion on prv we had just a moment ago and I, i want to switch gears and go over to sewage projects i'm sure you've had many jobs where you go in and there's sewage and uh, i just recently had one here and um you know i'm curious what you recommend with respect to when you when you're brought in because oftentimes they don't have a third party come in after after sewage but um you know i just had one in a medical facility and they wanted to have some kind of prv done i'm curious what would uh what would you typically recommend for uh, post remediation verification on a sewage backflow. Yeah, that's that's always been a difficult one. I've had a number of cases like that, particularly in in homes, and um, you it, you have to go uh, to the back to the uh, to the visual inspection. Uh, you have an overflow of a toilet. Uh, one I would remember vividly is a toilet in a house uh, in um, in Connecticut uh, where. Basically, it, 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 the family is away for a week, and of course, the plumbing knows exactly when you go on vacation because that's when it breaks. And it, 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 go, it, it flooded their entire, ba- um, you know, their, their lower level of their um, of their house where they had a rec room and they had uh, a workshop and, and this bathroom, um, and then a garage which was adjacent to it as well. By the time I got involved, of course, they were already in, well into the cleanup. It's, you know, this, that's something you have to do almost immediately is to start doing the cleanup of it. Uh, you can't let it sit very long. The difficulty is always, where did it get into? Where, where did all the sewage go? I mean, you can do a surface clean of, you know, of carpets or walls um, and, and, and anything else that you think might be affected by it. But if you have um, walls that are, are, are able to be penetrated by liquid, you might have reservoirs of this material inside your walls that you know nothing about. Uh, so when you get to the post-remediation, what we did in this particular case, we did a, 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 what they thought was a feral cleanup. We were getting, you know, we, just by regular 
uh, air sampling for, for, for mold spores, we saw, you know, lots of very high concentrations. And we were wondering, well, what, where is it coming from? Well, when they open up the walls, that's when they started to see the mess. So visual inspection has to go beyond just, you know, what you see from what, you, you know, the, in the building itself. You have to go inside the walls. You have to go under the floor. And you have to, you have to really look very carefully as to where the, the sewage may have gone. Uh, this ended up in an insurance uh, uh, lawsuit, in which I ended up having to testify. And, um, <clears throat> and they asked me, "Well, what would you have done differently?" Well, one of the things is I would have called myself, uh, you know, by, in, in earlier, hopefully, and, and made a decision whether or not to open up the walls right away. And I think that would have helped in terms of the situation. Um, by the time I was involved, it, it was supposedly clean, and it wasn't. And uh, this is one of the biggest problems with sewage is you just don't know how, how extensive the problem may be until you actually start knocking down walls and looking inside. I've got to follow up on that. How I've never seen much, if anything, on how hazardous it is to leave that sewage behind. Is there research on that that you're aware of? I mean, do people actually develop bacterial infections after sewage damage in homes or in buildings? I've just always wondered about that. I have not seen much data about health effects so much as, as basically it's a, it's a building condition uh, problem. It, it, you, you're, you're, you're weakening the walls. You're, you're causing problems with the, with the wood or with the, the plywood or with the, uh, with the uh, drywall, things of that nature. In some cases, it's visible. It's easy to deal with the visible. It's where it's invisible that the problem may be really prob you know, problematic. But as where as health effects are concerned, I, I think more it's a problem for the people doing the cleanup. Uh, you want to make sure that they're uh, well protected, particularly if they're doing it with uh, black water. Uh, you want to make sure that they, they, they have adequate protection while they're cleaning, there's a lot of times, you know, you're scrubbing and you're using hands, your hands to do things. You need to make sure you have adequate protection for your hands and for your, and, and make sure you have adequate protection for, for your, your clothing as well. So I think it's more of that type of situation rather than directly affecting uh, people's health. I think mainly because when you have sewage backup, you're going to clean it up quick. Whereas, whereas you have mold, it's not as quick. Sometimes people don't live for years with mold. But when you have sewage backup, you know, you're going to call somebody pretty quickly to get it cleaned up. So I don't think it, it, the, the problems with health really uh, have time to develop in that particular case. Joe, if, 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 if I might. Please. Uh, yesterday I had to update my, my pest control license and I had to take the, the core class. And that's the basic course that uh, pest control licensing is, is based upon. And what's interesting is in the course I I took the, the fellow that was teaching it is an expert on swimming pools. And what I'm going to suggest both to you guys and to the, to the listeners is just do some research on fecal matter, diarrhea, and swimming pools. Yeah. And what's absolutely crazy is uh, the fact that you can have, you know, one piece of visible large fecal matter, you know, one log in a swimming pool, and it can cause a major, major problem. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have a local amusement park here called Kennywood. I'm sure Joe's very, very familiar with it. 
and they actually have had a ride, which I believe now is closed, uh, the log jammer, Joe. And sure. essentially they would get about, I don't know, 20 people and you'd be in this log and essentially you go up this incline and then you go down and it goes into a swimming pool, uh, you know, at the bottom. And they had this accumulation of water in that pool. There was a local person from Pittsburgh who got splashed in the eye and he ended up with uh, major corneal damage because he ended up getting a microorganism that they found in the water that damaged his eye and they couldn't even remove it all. And they, they had to like scratch his cornea with a razor blade and so on and so forth. So I actually think this sewage may be a whole lot worse than any of us ever thought and uh, the CDC uh, has a lot of documents on it. And what I'll do is, uh, as part of the blog, I think I'll put some of the documents in there that, you know, in the event that people want to research it. That would be a great, uh, great thing to see, Cliff. I just, I, I mean, it, I'm curious, you know, and I agree with Don. I think the largest hazard is for those who are doing the cleanup. But obviously there's uh, some potential for others that are still living there, especially if they're immune compromised to develop uh, you know, issues related to microbial contamination. Don, one final question on that particular topic. What are your thoughts on using ATP sampling uh, to either verify that areas have been affected um, or areas have been properly cleaned after a water damage events such as a Category 3 water damage? I, I'm not sure that that, that is as effective as using the, the spore trap. I mean, Basically, you're, you're, when you do any type of sampling, it's, 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 you have to be careful what, what you're dealing with. One of the projects I'm working on right now with a, a team from AIHA uh, relates to um, the problems with uh, in the inaccuracies of uh, various types of measurements that we, we do, okay? And, and the, the percentage is, is of, of different types of of, you know, answers you may get from a laboratory can be a plus or minus 120%. You know, you could get, you could get results that say zero and you get something that says 120,000 uh, uh, colony forming units. You know I mean? So you don't know what, what, what's going to be uh, really effective by taking any type of air sampling. You have to take into account the margin for error. You have to take into account the, uh, the, uh, the media. You have to take into account the laboratory's ability to analyze it. Uh, there's so many different factors that, uh, as I see my friend Jack Springston on, on, the, on the chat line, there's tons and tons of useless samples there uh, that are being taken. And really, it goes back to doing a visual inspection, thorough visual inspection of the facility before you get into any type of sampling, uh, using any type of device. No matter what it is that you're using, there's always a big error potentially built into this uh, type of sampling, and you just have to be careful what, whatever you do to make sure that you recognize it's just one tool that you use, and it's not the only tool that you use. Okay, I think that's fair enough. Let's let's move to the next topic. I wanted to, and and part of the reason actually we had been corresponding as much as we were here recently was the the Phil Moray scholarship. Um, wondering if you could update listeners on how that went. We put. A couple of announcements in the blog. Uh, as I understand it, things went pretty well. You're putting together, helping, helping put together that scholarship fund. I think that's through the AIHA, and uh, maybe you could tell listeners a little bit more about that. Yeah, this this is one of the things that 
I'm really happy about is to, to make an announcement that we did, in fact, um, have a matching uh, amount donated by, by people that listen here and, and also others. Uh, we, we had, uh, myself and, and Lan Chi basically said to, uh, to the IEQ committee at AIHA back in May in Philadelphia that we would uh, match uh, a donation uh, up to $10,000 so that we could have a scholarship. And uh, over the course of uh, the next two months, uh, everyone pulled together and, and we had a donation of a little over $10,000, which we, we Lan Chi and I have just recently matched which means we can, in fact, award a scholarship uh, at the next AIHA meeting in Minneapolis. So, so I'm very pleased about that. And I want to thank everybody who has donated. I think I have thanked everybody already personally, but I want to thank anybody who's listening today, too, for everything that they, they, they donated. It was really a, a great campaign. And we're looking forward for that first uh, Mori uh, scholarship to be awarded in Minneapolis. So that will all go to one person? Well, not all. No, what we're doing is we want to have a continuous um, um, scholarship. So what you do is you put together a certain amount of money, and the minimum that AHA recommends is 25000 that you put into the bank and earn interest on. So the first scholarship uh, will be approximately $1,000, which will then award to, any, you know, to, the, to the student. I would recommend that if you're still interested, please donate more, because the more money that we have in the Maury Scholarship, the more scholarships we can award. But it's on the basis of the of the interest that they know they can get. That's what we we awards, and then it continues every year uh, going forward. Don, I have a follow up. Uh, was there something that occurred between you and Phil? Uh, you know, some incident or whatever that really touched you, and uh, you know, made you decide to do this? Yeah, I would say that he's. Uh, one of the people that I, I really admired always when I, when I, when I, when I worked with him uh, on AIHA stuff, I didn't work with him personally. Uh, I didn't have that opportunity. Uh, he was always a gracious individual. Uh, he's from Pennsylvania, as you, as you both of you probably right. know, right. Uh, down in Gettysburg. And, uh, and he, he always was, had a kind word to everybody. He was very soft spoken, but boy, did he, what he said had a powerful impact. Uh, when I first encountered uh, Phil was uh, probably about 1987, 88. We had the first international uh, symposium in indoor air quality by AIHA, and he was one of the speakers. And when he talked about, you know, the type of work he was doing, it changed my entire life. I mean, basically, I spent the next 25 years doing a lot with, uh, with mold and, 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 uh, and uh, moisture in and, and, and buildings and uh, because of his presentations. And uh, so I felt that it was appropriate. Unfortunately, he has now passed away uh, about two years ago. So we missed his guidance in a lot of these things. And uh, so for me personally, it was, uh, it was a life-changing event to have met Phil and to have, uh, have listened to his presentations. You know, well, Don, go ahead, Cliff. No, I was going to say it's, um, it's one of those things that I'm just glad that we did interview him. And, uh, you know, we have an archived interview on IQ Radio. Yep. Put a link. We should probably put a link to that on the blog, Cliff. Uh, okay. Good thing to do. Um, Don, you mentioned, and I kind of neglected to put this in the questions, but uh, I'm sure you could come up with a, a thought or two off the top of your head. The AIHA conference, I didn't ask you any questions on that. Um, can you kind of update listeners? It was uh, April or May of this year in Philadelphia, I believe. I didn't make it to that either. 
And I'm wondering uh, what were the uh, key points, the highlights that uh, you may want to let listeners know about? Sure. Um, I, I think the, 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 the nice thing about the AIHA conferences uh, over the years has been it's a continuity from one year to the next uh, for different types of topics that are, 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 you know, are important. I think there's a renewed emphasis in, in the AIHA area uh, for, um, for indoor air quality. Uh, they've, you know, they've, the, uh, the Indoor Environmental Quality Committee is a very active committee, and I would recommend anybody who's interested in indoor air quality to, you know, to, to participate in, in its meetings, uh, they, they meet not only at the conference, but also at the uh, uh, online. Um, the types of presentations I saw mainly were um, oriented towards more, uh, I would say, exposures in industrial facilities that have been neglected or have not been as well taken care of as we'd like to. And that's particularly overseas. Uh, there's a, there's a, and I don't think there's anyone who doesn't know that in North America, the amount of industry that we have has, has decreased somewhat. Uh, we still have very good industry, particularly in, uh, in the, in the heartlands. Uh, but there's a lot more going on overseas in places like China, India, uh, in, in Southeast Asia. And those exposures there are the same ones that were encountered by workers in North America back in the fifties and sixties. And that is really where we're looking to, to put more renewed emphasis on the international problems that are occurring there. And I think that's what we're seeing a lot of the presentations on are, are things that are happening there and what, they, what they're trying to do to prevent um, a problem down the road for, for a lot of these workers. In, the, in North America, we, we focus more in, on office uh, in, in those types of environments. And the, the types of indoor air quality um, reports that I see it really relates more to problems with, with, uh, with buildings that are new. Um, one of the things that struck me, and <laughs> I'll, I'll relate this back, is that at summer camp we had a, a great presentation about buildings in, the, in, uh, in, in Great Britain uh, offered by a, a, a terrific professor. And one of the things she mentioned is that the, the average age, the length of time that a building exists in, in urban areas, is 16 years, 16 wow. years, you know, which to me is like that, that's an indication that there is some problems with these buildings. If they were good buildings, they would, they would be lasting a lot longer, but these buildings are not lasting because and I think one of the problems is, is they don't have very good indoor air quality. People just complain uh, about it because it's too tight or, they, you know, the sunlight is, is, is the wrong way. They're not give, given adequate sh uh, shading of any sort. So I think there's something to be said if we're seeing buildings Going up, being built, and being torn down within 16 years, there's something wrong with the way in which we're doing buildings right now. And I think one of the problems is indoor air quality. That's a good point, Dawn. And in fact, I know um, the restoration industry's global watchdog has been uh, working hard on getting that particular professor to join us for a show. So I think that that's uh, coming up not too far from now. Um, the other thing I was curious about, and I know we're going to talk about this in a moment when we go over some of the summer camp presentations. Uh, at AIHA, I would imagine, not being there, I'm just guessing, but I would imagine Legionella uh, is getting a good bit of attention. Is that uh, accurate? Yeah, I, that is accurate. Uh, Legionella uh, is a, a major problem here in North America in many of, the, of our cities. 
this time of year is one of the one of the primary times when we have problems. I mean, we just had a recent outbreak again in in New York City. Um, the uh, there is a subcommittee that works on the AIHA Legionella um, uh, booklet or uh, or guide, and they're looking to update that. But one of the ones that is very good and just recently has come out is the new ASHRAE. Uh, standard uh, 188 that talks about uh, Legionella and how to deal with water system problems. So certainly that's a big, uh, that's a major topic and, and it was at the AIHA conference, but it also was at the ASHRAE conference that I attended down in, uh, in Houston as well. And there's a lot of discussion on how, the, how to manage water inside buildings and what, what, what is the best way to handle water systems. So I think it's going to be a big issue continuing for, for quite a lengthy time. Yeah, these, these water features are seem to be more and more popular these days, and I don't know that the architects putting them in or the building owners paying for them realize um, what the potential issues are. That was one of the most dramatic things I saw in Jack Springsteen presentation where he had that, that building that had like a 100-foot waterfall of some sort. I think it was in Shanghai or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's just, it's, just, it's just asking for problems. Probably to happen. <laughs> Don, let's let's jump over to that. Uh, we we got to talk to you. I got to talk to you and Lan Chi at uh, summer camp, Joe Steebrook's uh, building Westford Building Science Symposium. Uh, I had some great speakers this year. I, I thought this year was nice. There was a little more emphasis on indoor air quality. Uh, I'm wondering if you could uh, go over with listeners some of the key points you um, you know. You, you, you recall from that particular, um, you, you get around, buddy, I'll tell you, you know, from, <laughs> for that trip. Yeah, that was, that was a great summer camp. Uh, I really appreciate uh, the invitation every year to it. I mean, it's, uh, it was some great presentations. And the one you, you mentioned about indoor air quality from Brett Singer, uh, we talked briefly, uh, you know, about some of that. Uh, one of the things that I, I caught right at the front of it was that he, he, he quoted uh, uh, the Corsi Code, as they, as they call it, Rich Corsi being a good friend of, of myself and, and also Brett. You know, they, 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 the numbers he gives is 79 is the average life lifespan, 69 of, uh, years we spend indoors, 54 of those years we spend in our home, 26 of those years we spend in bed, 4.3 years we spend in vehicles, and six, only six years of our lives do we actually spend outdoors. So if you look at that, what should we be doing in terms of emphasis? You obviously got to look at what you're doing inside indoors. Absolutely. That was a great uh, – he, he did a very nice job. I think he opened a lot of the – a lot of architects, engineers, uh, builders attend that show. I think he opened a lot of eyes. Any other uh, highlights from Brett's presentation? One of the most interesting things I thought was that when he talked about some of their research that they're doing in California about what's going on with ventilation in particularly new housing, uh, he said that, sure, there's a lot more ventilation than there used to be in older houses, particularly, uh, you know, operable windows and kitchen exhaust. The problem is, even though they're, they're built into the houses, people don't use them. So yeah. a lot of times you got a, a, a kitchen exhaust, that it, the frequency of use is, is like one out of ten or something of that nature. Windows themselves, people may have or want to have operable windows, but they're not using them. And so you don't get that inter, you know, the infiltration that you might have from outdoors. So I thought that was fascinating that, that, that there's a real problem with that. And he mentioned gas burners in particular being a problem with regards to the source of NO2, 
formaldehyde, ultrafine particles. Well, if you're not using your ventilation system, you're adding to your problems inside those homes. Yeah. I, I thought he did. And then he, he mentioned some, some real easy tips too, like cook on the back burner. You know, number one, use your ventilation. <laughs> but secondly, cook on the back burner. Uh, he was pretty negative on the um, uh, unvented fireplaces and uh, the you know, kind of uh, decorative in a way. You know, he was pretty negative on those as well. And I, I tend to agree with that. Um, what other presentation? I, I know you've got to mention John Straub's presentation on oh, this. That was just phenomenal. Well, it tell was. us a little bit about that one. That was that was like I, I think we mentioned before the, uh, we started the, uh, the recording. I mean, that was a whole semester's worth of of of, of, of moisture physics in in a two and a half hour presentation. Uh, more information than than I've ever heard before about moisture physics. Uh, and I I was just astounded about the different phases of water. The way he talked about. Uh, the difference between being porous and, and being permeable, how most building materials are porous, but not necessarily permeable. What is the nature? The nature of the building material is as important as that as the nature of the water. So it really was a fascinating presentation because it really gave us a lot of details about how to look at buildings differently in terms of moisture and how it gets into buildings. And so John did a terrific job. I, I, I thought the part about the wood in particular was, was the most interesting thing I've ever seen. And it, it just, it, you know, one of, I've ever seen about wood, okay? <laughs> Maybe not the most interesting of everything that I've ever seen in my life, but definitely about wood, about how it works. And, and one of the things that I always worried about and I never thought about really as to how it occurs was how, you know, on the outside of a house, why does paint start to peel off? Why does it start to crackle? Well, he, he mentioned that in many cases, the wood, that's bowing and bending that's causing the paint to come off. Well, that's a really great insight because many people don't even think of that in terms of why they're, you know, we're just repainted again. Well, what, what about the wood itself? Why is it doing that in terms of the you know, humidity levels and in terms of the weather that you have in your area? So I thought it was just an overall great presentation. I also thought what, what was really important was how, Water deposits on materials in, in layers, essentially. And he, he described those layers and, and that, um, you know, the lowest, the bottom layer was most tightly uh, bound to the water. Yeah. Yeah. The water. Go ahead. I was going to say, yes, he made a, a very good, well, he also had some good animations as well, which were great. Yes. Uh, but they showed how, how basically we don't, we can't think of water just being one phase. There's a variety of different phases that occur on a, on a surface um, uh, water, and the ones closest to the to the to the uh, the underlying surface are the are the key as to whether or not you have, uh, uh, you know, whether or not the water gets into the uh, into the into the material or, or not. So, I, you know, thinking again, not just about moisture in, in a building, but thinking about the way in which moisture gets into the building was really a critical part of what what he was able to present, and I, you know, it was was really eye opening for me. So I'm sure it was for many people. And I think, Cliff, I'm pretty sure I can get you a couple of those slides, and I know John would, would uh, let us use them that maybe we could put in the blog. They were very good, uh, especially I think when, you know, he was he had a slide that kind of showed how water gets into buildings in different forms, et cetera, and then how it comes out of buildings. It was a, a really great presentation. Don, um, we've got about four minutes left here. Um, any other presentations? I know you mentioned Jack Springston. I mean, you might want to mention that one again. And any others that might have caught your attention at the uh, Building Science Summer Camp? 
I, I'm going to mention Jack because, well, first of all, he's a great friend. But in addition, I think he did a terrific job about Legionella. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting was the discussion on biofilm and how it builds up on shower heads and faucets and in cooling towers. It's, a, it's really a critical issue with regards to how, whether or not you have Legionella or not in the building. So it's, it's important to recognize that as being part of what we do. The other thing you mentioned was why do they have water management problems? And it turns out that 65% of them are process failures, 52% of it is human error, and 35% of it is, is equipment not working. So you're really looking at, you know, more uh, at the process itself failing and in people's errors in terms of how things uh, result in, in a growth of Legionella and then a problem with Legionella. And he mentioned the ASHRAE standard also with regards to uh, building water systems, the, uh, the 12-2000, which I think is a very good uh, way of, of, of working with, a, you know, with a building owner as to how they manage their water systems. It goes beyond just Legionella. It's really talking about all the different issues that you might have with, uh, with water systems. Okay. I want to close this out. I want to talk a little bit about the big picture, Don, over, you know, you've, you've been around for over 25 years. I don't want to date you too much, maybe 30 <laughs> years. Industry. How about 43 years? How's that? How many? 43. 43 years. Wow. Good for you. Good for you, buddy. You look, you look great, by the way. Um, what over that lengthy career uh, in, in indoor air quality and industrial hygiene, what, what has changed with, you know, over those past 25, 30, 40 years in these fields? What, what big changes do you see? Well, it's very interesting. I'm in the process. I'm going to be presenting this at the AIBC conference. It's, uh, I'm calling it a modern history of indoor air quality, starting in 1973 and building right up to now, 45 years. Um, you might remember what happened because you're almost my age, Joe, and then Cliff, too. Uh, 1973, the energy crisis, the first one, yep. that, was, that was really, you know, one of the things that triggered a lot of problems with regards to uh, changes in the, particularly in the indoor environment. Um, and then, of course, it then was followed up with the 1978 one, which really caused people to say, well, this is not something we can ignore. Uh, so what has changed since then is uh, the way we treat our buildings. We don't necessarily treat our buildings the same as we did back in 1972 or 71, where there were there was vast openings in the buildings, infiltration, windows open, doors open. Were, you know, if you if you want to think about back in that period of time, you know, you you commonly had homes that operable windows. You didn't necessarily even have buildings, office buildings, or anything else that didn't have operable building uh, windows as well. And then of course our industrial facilities were always open to the air in many ways. We have done a lot to tighten up the buildings because of the energy crisis more than anything else. But the problem with that is we haven't necessarily spent as much time thinking about what does that affect in terms of the indoor air quality for the people living or working or playing in those buildings. So I find it very fascinating that people are going back to natural ventilation again. If you've taken a look at anything, um, you know, any of the tennis that's taking place at the U.S. Open, First of all, it's enormously uh, hot there. They're having major problems with that. But the Louis Armstrong building uh, uh, tennis uh, center that they built is naturally ventilated even when the roof is on. Uh, so they have these vast panels that allow air to come in. That's a big change from what everybody thought. If you remember some of the, build, the studio or the stadiums that they built, they were completely mechanically ventilated. In some cases, well, in some cases, not so well. 
So there's a big change happening now in terms of that as well. So I think we're going from that, that era where we, where we are all dependent on mechanical systems, maybe back to something that's a little bit more manageable in terms of natural air ventilation systems. They're going to be a little bit more of a mix now and as opposed to just all open or all closed. That's right. I think that has to be, you have to take into account the, the climate you, work, you live in, the type of, uh, for in particular, PM225 particulates you have in the air, and really work with, the, with, the, uh, with that in mind in terms of the type of ventilation that you want to have in that area. Well, let's, put, let's get out the crystal ball here, Don. Uh, final question, maybe oh, I got one after this, the usual finish, but um, what do you see as the, the future of this industry? What should we be watching for? Uh, where are we headed? Well, uh, one of the things we haven't had a chance to talk about much is uh, Indoor Environmental Quality, the Global Alliance, uh, which I'm the president of. Uh, and I, I want to mention that simply because it is a, a, an area that I, I feel that I'm going to be spending a great deal of time over the next 10, well, maybe not 10 years, but maybe over the next three or four years. Um, the reason is that by having these various groups work together, and then we have representatives in the North America, from Europe, we now have India, we're talking to Brazil, we have potentially uh, Italy as well. These groups have been working nationally, well now we're going to be working internationally and talking about the various types of problems that may exist. And if you look at the number of people who, who are, are affected in air quality wise, you know that those are the areas of growth. India alone uh, has, it's estimated, uh, 2.5 million people who die every year from indoor air quality from cooking stoves. Uh, wow. So you want to look at that as being an issue that's going to be definitely affecting the world as, as we go up, go on. And we have solutions. We just need to work together to try to get those solutions to the people who really need them. Yeah, I'm really glad. I, I totally blanked on the uh, IEQ Global Alliance there, Don. I'm glad you brought it up. That was something that started out of ASHRAE, or is that? Well, Ashley was certainly one of the instigators. Uh, the, uh, Bill Bonfleck, when he was president, uh, that was one of his uh, pre presidential, uh, you know, he wanted to appoint people to that committee. So it's about 2014 when we got started. And it's, uh, it's going strong. And we were hoping that, uh, you know, that we'll see uh, continued growth and more cooperation between the various groups. So you've got ASHRAE, IAQA, um, AIHA, I think, is a part of that. What other, just maybe real quick, a couple others. Yeah, AWMA, and then there's an organization in, in, in uh, well, I mentioned AIVC while I'm going to their convention. Uh, yep. RECA, which is R-E-H-B-A, -E which is uh, the European, it's 27 countries uh, who deal with ventilation problems in, uh, in their national uh, areas but they you know they cooperate on a, on, a, on the basis of uh, uh, 27 nations there so it's and then we have ishray which is the india um, group as well and looking at a brava which is the brazilian group they're also involved with ventilation but also involved with indoor air quality so I'm, i see it as a growing uh, area and I, i'm hoping that it will be a highly successful cooperative uh, program going forward and how long does the presidency last there? Is that a rotating thing or how long? I got to convince somebody to take my place. That's what it comes uh -huh. down to. <laughs> so you'll be there for a while. Huh? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs>
Maybe Cliff can take the, the maybe Cliff, you should take the responsibility for this. Well, what, what, you know, I, I just learned the other day the United States is energy independent now, so <laughs> we can go back to the old way and let the rest of the world sort it out. So. <laughs> well, Don, any final thoughts? Anything you'd like to add before we go? Yeah, uh, this may be my last time on indoor IQ radio since I'm now retired. Uh, I want to thank you guys particularly, uh, both you and, and Joe and Cliff. You guys have made an amazing difference in this in this field. And uh, I want to recognize that as being something that uh, has been very valuable, not only to myself, but to all the listeners that have been here. So I, I just want to thank you guys for all you do. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Don. Coming for you, that means a lot. I know uh, you, you, uh, you've got a great, good heart, and that uh, you, you certainly volunteer enough and wonderful family. So thanks again for joining us, and uh, we'll definitely be having you back. Uh, you, can't, you can't get away from us that easy, buddy. <laughs> All right. That sounds great. <laughs> All right. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest, Don Weeks. Uh, great show. Of course, my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. At the controls, John, you got to have faith. Most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners. Hey, next week, we're going to do a uh, content show, right, Cliff? We've got the RIA contents crowd coming in. We're going to talk about how, you know, uh, it, contents is a huge topic after uh, mold or, you know, fires or after uh, water damage. How do you deal with the contents? We've got some people from the Carolina Conservancy coming in. Looking forward to a great show. We'll be back next Friday at noon for the next live broadcast of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening. 